lots of just really tremendous progress on both legislation and regulation. It's a whole new world. It's hard to cover it all. Government has played such a critical role in accelerating the creation of the internet and GPS and even iPhones. That's what public research funding can help accomplish. And if governments don't take this opportunity to lead alternative protein, that's really the biggest threat is inaction. The primary person in the U.S. who's responsible for drafting the federal budget, which is billions and billions of dollars, recently said in public remarks that she would like to see parity between research funding for conventional animal agriculture and for alternative protein. And that's an, an enormous, enormous statement. We worked with a legislator in California. It's very exciting. He offered legislation that would provide incentives to farmers who are interested in transitioning away from growing livestock or soy as livestock feed to growing inputs for plant-based products. Hey peeps, how fascinating. This episode is filled with good news. From the legislative perspective, it has made me pretty hopeful. Our last episode covered Amendment 171, which is legislature in the EU that tried to ban the use of terms like milk and creamy for plant-based products. In this episode, you will learn more about plant and cell-based censorship in the US, the role of open access research to grow cellular agriculture, and how to engage farmers in the transition. You'll hear from Scott Weathers, Senior Policy Specialist from the Good Food Institute, also known as GFI. GFI is a leading nonprofit working internationally to accelerate alt-protein innovation. This is episode 9 in our season, and you actually don't need to have listened to any other episodes to understand this one. But if you want an introduction to cultivated meat, check out our season 1. Let's jump right in. This is Red to Green. You're listening to Season 3 on promoting alternative proteins. 12 episodes covering consumer acceptance and food psychology of novel foods, like cell-cultured meat and alternative dairy. To receive the best takeaways on food tech and sustainability, subscribe now. And sign up to our newsletter at redtogreen.solutions. I'm your host, Marina Schmidt. Scott, it's really lovely to talk to you on Red to Green. Yeah, pleasure to meet you, Marina. I'm really excited for this conversation. I'm not very deeply in the legislature topics or in the regulation topics. However, I think that this is very, very important for people in the industry to understand. Would you agree with that? And how do you see that? How important is it for professionals who are working in the alt protein space to actually look at these topics? Yeah, absolutely. Well, legislation is so critical to the alternative protein industry and state legislatures, which is my primary focus at GFI, are affecting the alternative protein industry in a wide variety of ways. So just to kind of give you some examples, over the last few years, there unfortunately have been many state legislatures that have introduced what we call label censorship legislation. And these are bills that seek to prohibit the use of terms like plant-based sausage, veggie burger, soy milk, almond milk, on the labels of plant-based products, as well as cultivated meat products. And the intention of these pieces of legislation is basically to kneecap the emerging alternative protein industry. We see just tremendous growth in consumer demand for alternative protein products. And instead of competing fairly in the marketplace, the incumbent animal protein industry is trying to use the power of state legislatures to censor the labels of their opponents. So that's obviously something that we oppose, and we oppose it on free market grounds, on freedom of speech grounds, and we seek to, to fight those bills wherever we can. As an example, just last night, I had to stay up until midnight because the state legislature of Texas has been considering 
a label censorship bill. Fortunately, we were able to prevail there, which is very exciting. So we were able to, to defeat a label censorship proposal at literally the 11th hour at 11.40 last night. There was some final talk of the bill, but it didn't go forward. And so that's, you know, defensively, I think that's a great example of the impact that legislatures can have, but they can also have a very positive impact. My key priority offensively is to work with state legislatures to generate open access research funding for the alternative protein industry. And we think that it's critical for open access research funding to take place because in contrast to private research or when companies themselves do research on products, public research, the findings of that can be more broadly shared. And so it helps accelerate the growth of an industry as a whole rather than just any individual company. But yeah, so legislation is is critical to the work that we do in the alternative protein industry. To build startups that change the industry not only requires capital, but also the relevant know-how and valuable connections. Check out our partner Atlantic Food Labs, an early stage investor and venture studio for startups. Founded in 2016, the Berlin-based investor is one of Europe's leading venture firms for food and agriculture, investing in exciting topics such as alternative proteins, water supply, vertical farming, solutions for food waste and carbon reduction. Led by the vision to feed 10 billion people by 2050 in a sustainable and healthy way, Atlantic Food Labs has supported over 20 mission-driven founding teams to launch their ideas. For example, they've invested in Legendary, the cultured milk startup featured in our episode 4, making real cheese without cows. Mush Labs, making meat alternatives from fungi and gorillas designing the future of grocery shopping. And now back to today's episode. And for the non-native listeners, could you explain what is the difference between legislature and regulation and maybe an example of alt-protein regulation? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's probably already clear, but most of my experience is in the US. But basically, legislation is, as you can imagine, law. So these are laws that are passed by legislatures in the US. Uh, We have a bicameral system. That means we have a, at the federal level, we have a House and a Senate. And when those e- each of those chambers of the legislature will pass a bill, and then it will be signed by the president and become law. And then every state also has a legislature. So we have 50 state legislatures in the US that, that can pass laws that affect their own states as, in addition to the federal legislature, which is Congress. And so that, that's kind of legislation. And then regulation is basically how those laws are enforced. And typically in the US, those regulation is Forced by different agencies. So we have a variety of different agencies for different subject matters and topics. For alternative protein, kind of the two agencies that are most relevant are USDA, the US Department of Agriculture, and FDA, which is the Food and Drug Administration. And those two agencies regulate a variety of issues of relevance to the alternative protein industry, including labeling issues, and probably most importantly, the regulatory pathway for cultivated meat. So some of your listeners, I'm sure, are familiar with the joint agreement that the USDA and FDA have created to regulate cultivated meat, which is a very exciting step forward to see. So you can't currently buy cultivated meat yet in the US. Singapore is the only country that you're able to buy it currently, but the USDA and FDA have agreed to jointly regulate it. And and we'll see what that final framework looks like, but it's a very, very promising step forward. So in the US, you were talking about the national level and there are these different levels, right? From macro to micro legislature, from national, 
probably to maybe state, yeah. international, national, and federal, etc. How do these interact with each other? Yeah, it's a great question. I think in the US, the federal government it takes precedence, in particular on labeling issues. If the federal government says, or if Congress, you know, wants to pass a bill that says we want food labeling to look like this, that legislation will take precedence over what a state legislature might say. And there are several examples of that. But every country is different. In the US, I think it's really the federal government gets the primary say on most issues. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Can you give us a current overview of what is going on in terms of legislation? So we look at the alternative protein space, so both the plant-based and the cultured meat space. What should we know to be up to date on what has been going on for the past couple of years? Yeah, I mean, there's just been a flurry of activity. There's, there are so many things happening. One of the biggest updates probably in the last year is that you can now buy cultivated meat in the world. There is somewhere where it's currently legal, which is incredible. So Singapore last year became the first country on earth to regulate cultivated meat. And you can now buy cultivated meat there. And a company called Eat Just became the first company in, on earth to sell a cultivated meat product. They're now even partnering with a local delivery service. So you can get cultivated chicken delivered to your door if you want, which is so wild and amazing and incredible. So that's from a regulatory perspective. That's some of the biggest news that we've seen in a long time. And we hope that you know that will lead to other countries considering formalizing a, a regulatory pathway for cultivated meat. From a legislative perspective, I think a lot has happened both in the US and in Europe in terms of rejecting attempts at label censorship. In the US, we've seen a wide variety of, of US states decide that they do not want to pursue label censorship. I mentioned Texas just last night rejected a label censorship attempt. Other states, including several states that have very significant conventional animal agriculture presence like Kansas or Nebraska have rejected label censorship. So very, very exciting to see that happen. We also saw in Virginia last year, right before the pandemic started, the legislature there passed a, a label censorship bill that would have censored the labels of plant-based milk products. But very fortunately, the governor actually stepped in and decided to veto that legislation. And, and that was a very promising sign. He said that label censorship would hurt Virginia companies, as well as not pass constitutional muster. So very exciting to see that happen. And similar things have happened in Europe, where label censorship attempts on meat have been rejected, and more recently dairy as well. And so very exciting progress on that. And then I'll also just mention that in terms of open access research funding, like I mentioned, it's just a very critical priority for us and for the industry to grow. We're seeing increasing interest around the world in supporting open access research. So just to speak to, you know, two examples in the U.S. that I think are really, really exciting. In the U.S., at the federal level, our budget is written primarily by what we call the Appropriations Committee. And the chair of that committee recently said in public remarks that she would like to see parity between research funding for conventional animal agriculture and for alternative protein. And that's an, an enormous, enormous statement. This is the primary person in the U.S. who's responsible for drafting the, the federal budget, which is extremely large. It's billions and billions of dollars worth of spending, saying that she wants to see a significant increase in funding for alternative protein research, which we think could make tremendous progress for this industry. One other example that I'll just share, I know there's a lot of progress, it's hard to cover it all, but one last example of, of really exciting progress that we're seeing is that in 
in Minnesota, we saw the first ever bipartisan legislation to support the alternative protein industry. So two legislators, one a Republican senator and a Democratic representative, uh, co-sponsored legislation that would provide open access research funding. So that's a major step forward. And we're excited because Minnesota is just such a good fit for the alternative protein industry. It has very large capacity in terms of there are many conventional food companies that have their headquarters located there and world-class research institutions that have the, the skill set to do this work and really help advance the industry. So lots of just really tremendous progress on both legislation and regulation. It's a whole new world. We had somebody on the podcast connected to the European Vegetarian Alliance, and we discussed Amendment 171 in Europe, which as far as I know, yesterday was declined. I'm so happy yeah. about that. So just for the listeners, we are recording this on the 26th of May. It will probably be released a couple of weeks later. And all of the things that you're saying make me wonder, well, it sounds all good. It sounds nearly a bit too good to be true. <laughs> Do we need to worry at all about legislature or are we just checking off the boxes like <laughs> it's our grocery shopping cart list? <laughs> no, well, we definitely have to keep our eye on the ball. I've spent many a sleepless night thinking about this. So yeah, the fight is definitely not over. But I think with, with any new kind of emerging industry, there are always threats and opportunities. This session, for example, we've seen attempts to censor the labels of alternative protein products, certainly far less than previous years. So it's very good to see. But there's certainly always the threat that potential legislation like this could emerge. And then there's always more positive work to be done, offensive work, work that we can do to help advance the industry. And right now, research funding is the critical area that we see that happening in. So we're very excited. You know, I think the analogy that we sometimes use is that public investment in the renewable energy space, so solar and wind from governments, has really substantially helped accelerate that industry to where now solar is cost competitive with conventional energy sources. And we think that's a great analogy for alternative protein because there's clear reasons for governments to have an interest in seeing alternative protein accelerate, whether it's because of job creation or climate benefits. And we think that government has a really critical role to play. Yeah, absolutely. And if you think about how heavily subsidized conventional animal products are, then it also makes sense to think about potential subsidies for the alternative protein space. Do you see something like this coming? Is that realistic that this will happen within yeah, the next 10 years or something? Yeah, it's an interesting question. There have been attempts, there, there have been several bills actually passed in the US, for example, around plant-based procurement. So this would require public institutions, typically hospitals, schools, cafeterias in government buildings, things like that, entities like that, to either offer a plant-based option if someone requests it, or to serve a certain percentage of their meals as plant-based. There's a variety of different ways that those bills are typically drafted, but you know it's an exciting thing to see. And I'd say at GFI in particular, in, our, in terms of our policy goals, we focus on open access research funding because we see that long-term as really the critical driver of progress. But yes, certainly procurement for plant-based products is critical, and, and that can be a great tool as well. In episode 12 of the podcast, I discussed with Isha Datar from New Harvest the tricky situation that cultured meat, or let's say cellular agriculture, falls in between the 
biomedical topic and the food tech topic. So it's not really connected to a specific research field. And because there was a lack of fundamental research in the area, it would be hard for researchers to even apply getting their research funded. And thus, a lot of the patents are held by private companies. So a lot of the knowledge that should be publicly available is pooled and kept secret. Do you agree with that? And could you elaborate on how that has an influence on the industry and how it will grow? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, yeah, each is a phenomenal scientist. How many Uh, great questions, huh? (laughs) (laughs) They are. They're they're good questions. Yeah. I'm not a scientist. I wish I was. But I I think, broadly speaking, one of the, the biggest benefits that we see of open access research funding is that it makes knowledge public. And so obviously it's incredible when, for example, in the cultivated space, when companies are making tremendous gains and cutting the cost of cell culture media, for example, which is a key bottleneck to cultivated meat uptake. It's amazing when companies do internal research and are able to answer key research questions. But it sounds like what, from what Isha is saying, I agree with her that when that knowledge remains proprietary, when it's only owned by those companies, it can't have anywhere near the impact that it would have as if it was public. And so if we can support research, make that knowledge generalizable, then anyone can take it up and use it. It saves money, saves resources, because it ensures that research isn't duplicative. You know, it doesn't mean that 20 companies have to answer the same research question. It means that you can have one scientist, let's say at a university, publish a paper, and then everyone reads it, and then we can all go from there. The aspect of this being public and open access is really critical, and that's why we think that government can play a unique role, uh, because private companies understandably have an incentive to keep that information and knowledge to themselves. Okay, so how is the situation in the US versus, for example, in Asia or India? I I would say Unfortunately, it seems like most of these label censorship bills emerged in the US and in other countries have considered label censorship. Australia, I believe, has had some discussion around label censorship. Sure, there are other countries as well, but I've focused mainly on US states. The US was one of the first countries to declare its intention to regulate cultivated meat. That's kind of the FDA-USDA joint agreement that I mentioned earlier. But obviously, the US is now behind in terms of actually regulating cultivated meat and permitting those companies to bring their products to market. So it's incredibly exciting to see Singapore decide to do that. I think it's fair to say that given that Singapore is now regulating cultivated meat, other countries are not going to want to be left behind. They want to make sure that cultivated meat companies are going to be able to sell their products. They're going to be able to do it in a safe way and to have all of the economic benefits associated with that. And so, so that's just tremendous progress. And then lastly, I'll say, I think the US has been a little bit slow to support alternative protein research funding, but that is changing very quickly. A whole very wide variety of other countries have already funded alternative protein research or invested in alternative protein companies from Canada to the EU. Spain, I believe, has invested Israel, Germany, Singapore, Japan, a wide variety of countries have made these investments. And the US to date hasn't offered very many investments in this in terms of federal funding. But we think that's very quickly going to change. And it's very exciting to see. But yeah, the US is just catching up on that. Absolutely. A lot of our listeners are very engaged in the industry. And many of them want to help and support in any way that's possible. Let's say if some of our listeners are especially passionate about making sure that there is more funding in open research 
or they want to make sure that the legislation in their country is going in the right direction. Yeah. How would you recommend them to become active and support this? Well, I would love it if folks wanted to get involved. You can feel free to reach out to me on Twitter. I'd be happy to, to, to connect with you. Depending on where you are, I know the right person to put you in touch with. But you're always welcome to talk to your legislators. I think in the US, a lot of folks don't even realize that they are represented by someone in a state legislature, that they have a state senator, or a state representative. And for the most part, those folks are really excited to talk to you. They don't always hear from constituents and they want to know who's voting for them. They want to know what issues that people care about. And so just setting up a time to talk to them and encourage them to think about the alternative protein industry and see if there's a way that it makes sense for them to sponsor legislation on. So they might be interested in the job creation benefits of the alternative protein industry or having their state be a leader in the space, or they might be interested in the climate change aspect of this. There's a wide variety of reasons that might pull people to care about this. And then depending on the country, sometimes there are public comment periods. So if an agency like the FDA is considering uh, new regulation, they might post a public comment period that anyone, whether it's an organization or an individual, can submit comments to, and you can contribute that way. But all of this is really specific to wherever you're living. All typically have more to say about how to be engaged in the US, but GFI's affiliates in several other countries, so happy to connect folks with, uh, with them if it's helpful. And you were saying you are best being reached on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle? I, I think it's at S-C-T-W-E-A, but it's probably easier to just uh, search Scott Weathers, my name on Twitter. <laughs> okay, search his name on Twitter or probably on LinkedIn. I, for example, don't use Twitter. But oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, feel free. Either, either of those are great. Perfect. Maybe we can have a look at the influence of the incumbents, so of the established companies on the industry. In case you have some insights on that, how would you see the current engagement of the corporations? Are they using legislature? Do you think the legislature that has been discussed in the US of banning certain labels Is that driven by the corporations? It's pretty interesting. The primary groups that are really sponsoring or pushing label censorship are really the cattlemen's associations and other industry groups that represent the individual ranchers, the people who are actually doing livestock growing. But when we look at the companies like Tyson, JBS, these are some of the world's biggest meat companies. They're all investing in the alternative protein space. They're acquiring brands. They are trying to develop their own lines of products and marketing them. So this has increasingly become just a tremendous area of growth for them. And I think one very exciting way we see that is that several of these companies no longer call themselves meat companies. They call themselves protein companies because they see themselves as delivering protein to consumers, whether it's from animals or plants or cell culture or some other means. And so I think that's just a really significant shift in how companies are seeing themselves. And over the last couple of years, we've seen a lot of them introduce plant-based products and in, in some cases think about cultivated meat and make investments in cultivated meat companies. So I think the influence of companies on this space is really fascinating to watch. Oh, that's quite fascinating. So 
It seems to me that cultured meat and alternative proteins have been first a bit of a ridiculous thing, like a ridiculous side thing that has been driven by these weirdos. <laughs> <laughs> and then it became something that was laughed about at and slowly the corporations have started to take it more seriously. And a friend of mine, we were talking about this and he had this view on it, which I sort of agree with. If you find a way to make this a better business case for them, that's when the world is going to change. As soon as this is more profitable for the rich people in power, then it's going to drive massive improvement in the world. Improvement to the bottom line means it's actually going to happen. Do you agree with that statement? Yeah, I think that companies, for example, when I'm thinking about meat or protein companies, their primary interest is being able to sell products that consumers are going to buy. And they're not in particular tied to selling meat from animals, let's say. They're going to sell what consumers want to buy. And so increasingly, that means plant-based or cultivated meat, which is really, really exciting. And the reason that we see such tremendous growth is that consumer demand is there. And it's clear to companies that that demand is not going away. Plant-based is not a fad. It's not something that consumers are going to leave in a year or two. The demand is consistent, it's strong, and it's very quickly growing. And when we at GFI, we're a very pragmatic organization, I would say. When we think about our theory of change, kind of the three main variables that we look at are taste, price, and convenience or accessibility. And those are kind of the three attributes that we think drive most of consumer behavior when it comes to food. So just to take those one by one, taste, obviously consumers want products that are going to taste good. Price, the consumers want products that are going to be cheap. And convenience or accessibility, consumers want products that are going to be widely available. And so in order to compete effectively against conventional animal uh, meat, alternative proteins have to compete on all three of those dimensions. Plant-based products like the Impossible Burger and the Beyond Burger in particular are very realistic, taste as good or very close to as good as uh, conventional products, and in, at some point in time might even taste better than conventional products. And in terms of price, the prices are drastically dropping on, on alternative protein products. And then accessibility or convenience, you can get these products now, and at least in the U.S., you can get these products in just about every major supermarket fast food chain, they're very widely accessible now. And so it's very quickly competing on all three of those dimensions, which is so, which is so great to see. Most of the legislature that we talked about in the US is related to plant-based products, right? How is it regarding cultured meat or products in the cellular agriculture sphere? Has there been already legislation covering that or addressing that? And how do you see this being different to the plant-based case? So there, there, I would say legislation, like in particular label censorship legislation at the state level in the U.S. has actually focused on both plant-based and cultivated. I would say that more of the bills that have been introduced focus on cultivated meat, or at least try to. In particular, some of the industry groups, like I mentioned, the Cattlemen's Association, they're concerned about cultivated products that are down to the, the cellular level identical to conventional products. They're more concerned about that than, say, plant-based products, although they are concerned about both. So more of the bills are really focused on cultivated meat, uh, but there are plenty that mention both. But one important thing that I'll say is that in many instances, the legislators responsible for introducing these bills don't particularly understand the difference between cultivated meat and plant-based meat. And so they often conflate the two, use the terms interchangeably. They'll use terms like fake meat 
but not really distinguish whether it's plant-based or cultivated. And sometimes that's created issues because they, in testimony or in describing the bill, they will conflate the issues, mix the products up. So, And that's a mistake that the people who are even writing the legislature, they are doing that. Correct. Yeah. It's very sad to see. They'll very frequently not understand the products. And in many cases, they will say themselves that you don't have to take my word for it. They will say themselves, I'm doing this to directly benefit the conventional animal agriculture industry. So it's explicitly an anti-competitive protectionist measure. That's what they themselves say. So just to sum up your stance on it, because this is making me more optimistic. Generally in life, I'm optimistic in the cellular agriculture space. I'm pessimistic because I really want this to work. So I'm more yeah. like, okay, let's let's do things proper. Let's try to have messaging aligned and be aware of potential downfalls so we can avoid them. It seems to me that legislature is actually a part that isn't too bad. So it's not that worrisome compared to other things that we have covered which are more the issues of people being confused about the health aspects of these products by research like it has been done, for example, by the dairy industry, which literally focuses mostly on not convincing consumers that dairy is healthy, but a lot just on confusing them because then people stick to their old behavior. Mm. And at the same time, we also cover conspiracy theories, which definitely will happen. And the ick factor and people having a hard time getting over that. So looking at all of these topics, what do you see are the major obstacles? What is the most worrisome to you? I think obviously there are a variety of threats, like label censorship being probably the biggest so far, but we don't know what the, the cattlemen might have in store for us if they want to propose other harmful legislation they could. That's obviously a major threat. But I would say really the largest threat would be inaction. Government has played such a critical role in accelerating the renewable energy industry and providing research funding that's going to help beneficial industries like the alternative protein industry grow and been critical to, for example, the creation of the internet and GPS and even iPhones. That's what public research funding can help accomplish. And if governments don't take this opportunity to lead alternative protein then it will have a drastic impact on our climate, on job creation. And so I think that's really the biggest threat is inaction. Fun fact, you know that the mechanical loom, which was so important to make textiles yeah. affordable, took 50 years to catch on because of the opposition of workers that would lose their jobs. Wow. So it's interesting that you say that the Kettleman Association is the main opposition for this, which absolutely makes sense. And I'm wondering, do you think that there's a way to work together or a way to just make this a bit smoother in terms yeah. of collaborating with them? How can you reduce this threat that they will actually become a very strong force in hindering the progress of this field? Yeah, absolutely. I think there are a variety of ways. Eat Just, a company that I mentioned earlier that is selling cultivated meat in Singapore, they, for example, have partnered with a beef company in Japan to provide cell lines for cultivated meat. That's a great way that cultivated meat companies can work with conventional companies or with livestock farmers themselves. Another way that we've been working on at GFI is that we worked with a legislator in California, Assemblymember Kalra, Ash Kalra is his name, and he offered, it's very exciting, he offered legislation that would provide incentives to farmers who are interested in transitioning away from growing livestock 
or from growing plants like soy as livestock feed to growing inputs for plant-based products. And that's a really amazing piece of legislation that we think is critical for supporting farmers as they transition. We, we have an upcoming labor analysis that's going to deter- help us determine as the alternative protein industry grows, what impacts is that going to have on both workforce issues? How many jobs is it going to create? But what's the impact going to be on farmers and ranchers? And how can we make sure that the negative impact of that is minimized? And so I think it's certainly an interesting area uh, that we're learning and, and growing in constantly. To come to the ending questions, if you would have 50 million in what businesses would you invest in? I do think that if any of the cultivated meat companies would take my money, that's certainly a really exciting field that is, is going to be very high growth as countries approve regulations for cultivated meat. But then there are a number of other areas that I would look at in food. I think about indoor farming, maybe that's an exciting area, but I'm not an expert and so wouldn't take my investment advice. Regarding food sustainability or agriculture, what is an unusual opinion that you hold that many people would disagree with? So I know kale is having a moment. I love kale, but I feel very strongly that the best kale is dino kale. It's called dinosaur kale. I think the official name is actually like lacinato kale or something like that. But it is far superior to green curly kale, uh, which is the kale that most people are familiar with. And uh, you have to obviously soften it up and put it in lemon juice or something acidic to help break it down because it's so fibrous. But dino kale, you don't have to do that at all. So dino kale tastes better. Uh, it's not bitter in the way that green curly kale is. And you can put it in smoothies as that's the way I typically eat it or put it in a, a salad and it's much better. So kale is great, but you've got to get the right kind of kale. And I feel very strongly about that. Okay, I will check that one out. How can listeners connect with you? We already touched on that, but maybe just repeat it. Twitter is great. You can find me up there just by searching Scott Weathers. You can connect with me on LinkedIn as well if you'd like. Or if you want to reach out to me over email, my email is scottw at gfi.org. I'd love to hear from you. Scott, it was really fun talking to you. It was very insightful. Thank you. Yeah, such a pleasure, Marina. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening. When I first started Red to Green, I was amazed. Wow, this is so much work. And it's made possible by a dedicated, smart ninja team. If you enjoy our work, please take a minute to share it online, send it to friends or colleagues who would appreciate the episodes. Let's spread the message and let's move the food industry from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green.